Welcome back to Talking PFAS podcast and if you're joining me for the first time, welcome. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. Today's guest is Boston attorney John Gardella, a shareholder at CMBG3 Law and a member of the firm's PFAS team. John has been a repeat guest on Talking PFAS podcast before and due to his expertise, it's always a pleasure to speak with him about PFAS and litigation in the US. In today's discussion, we'll be talking about several of his articles that he has written for the National Law Review, and I will put a link to those and his website in the show notes. There are several points of significance in today's discussion with John, which I will briefly mention here, but we will discuss in more detail in our chat. The US EPA has published a document which sets out a timetable on when they intend to release enforceable regulations for certain types of PFAS in drinking water. The US EPA also intends to designate at least two types of PFAS, PFOA and PFOS, as hazardous substances under the Superfund law. The Ohio court has certified a PFAS class action lawsuit against 3M, which would include over 7 million people. Rob Belot is the lead attorney and the lead plaintiff is a firefighter. Any citizen in Ohio who has 0.05 parts per trillion of PFOA and at least 0.05 parts per trillion of any other PFAS in their blood serum will be eligible to join the class action, which seeks medical monitoring. John said what he believes will be significant is that Mr. Ballot wants a new science panel convened, similar to the one that occurred in West Virginia decades ago, the C8 study, which involved 70,000 people. However, the new Ohio science panel would include around 7 million people. The Governor of Washington has recently signed into law a bill which will require the Department of Ecology to name PFAS containing firefighting gear a priority product under the state's Safer Products for Washington initiative. In previous discussions, John has said that the cosmetic industry has a target on its back in relation to PFAS. And today he will talk about four lawsuits against four cosmetic giants which have occurred in the last three months. Now to today's discussion with attorney John Gardner. Della. Uh, John, it's been a while since we had a PFAS discussion and I'm wondering if you could please tell our listeners what are some of the big issues in the US right now regarding PFAS? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, there's been a lot since you and I last talked, Kayleen, but, um, you know, I guess I can list list off a couple of the biggest ones. Um, the first I would say is, is the one that everybody in the US is watching and many companies overseas are watching as well that have uh, U.S. footprints, but those are the steps that the EPA is taking. I'm not sure when you and I last spoke if the EPA had released what it's calling its PFAS roadmap, uh, essentially a 20-page document outlining how it's going to uh, enforce and uh, take steps to regulate PFAS. We didn't talk about that. When did EPA release that? That was at the end of October of 2021. EPA Administrator Michael Reagan established the EPA Council on PFAS in April 2021 and charged it to develop a bold, strategic, whole-of-EPA strategy to protect public health and the environment from the impacts of PFAS. On October 18, 2021, EPA Administrator Michael Reagan announced the agency's PFAS strategic roadmap, laying out a whole-of-agency approach to addressing PFAS. The roadmap sets timelines by which EPA plans to take specific actions and commits to bolder new policies to safeguard public health, protect the environment and hold polluters accountable. 
The actions described in the PFAS roadmap each represent important and meaningful steps to safeguard communities from PFAS contamination. Cumulatively, these actions will build upon one another and lead to more enduring and protective solutions. I asked John if the US EPA's PFAS strategic roadmap was significant. There's a lot of significance. I would say three things about it. First of all, it's the first time in EPA history, really, that it's given such a detailed and public disclosure of how it intends to address many, many issues related to PFAS and pollution and human health. And they focus on many different aspects of possible PFAS pollution. Drinking water was at the forefront of what they're talking about, but they also address air pollution and groundwater pollution and wastewater discharge. So they really took an all-encompassing approach in detailing some of the things that they intend to do. Now, of course, the thing in the U.S. and I know overseas as well that many people are are watching is developments related to EPA action on drinking water in the United States. For the first time, they put a timetable on when they intend to release uh, enforceable regulations for certain types of PFAS in drinking water, which we currently do not have at the federal level in the United States. So is my understanding the water guidelines have just been guidelines, haven't they? At the federal level, yes, there are uh, a number of states that have enacted their own enforceable regulations, but those are in the states themselves. So at the federal level, you are correct, Kayleen. That's right. You mentioned three things. That was kind of one. The second one I was going to mention was the intent of the EPA in the fall of this year, 2022, to propose a drinking water standard for certain types of PFAS. And their intent is to make the rule final. In other words, it's in law and it's enforceable by the EPA by the fall of next year. So by this fall, we will know what their intent is, and then they have to go through a required process where they open up their proposal to public comment. And so they're opening that up for one year, and they intend to have by the fall of 2023 a drinking water standard in the United States for all states, which would be enormous. Would that affect military, though, or would, or would military still be exempt as it is in Australia, like the EPA in Australia, the state EPA can't regulate on a military base, for example, that comes under federal? Just to add a little bit of context here, in Australia, in relation to PFAS contamination surrounding the Williamtown RAF base, the New South Wales EPA released an info sheet which states their limited regulatory power regarding federal sites. They state the Williamtown RAF-based contamination differs from most other PFAS-contaminated sites in New South Wales in that the EPA, as a state authority, has no regulatory powers over the Commonwealth Department of Defence. This limits the EPA's ability to direct Defence's actions and response times. The New South Wales EPA further states that they continue to seek a commitment from Defence and implement solutions to minimise discharges of PFAS contaminants migrating from the RAF base in Williamtown. What do you see the connection with a military base regarding PFAS and this EPA standard? So yes, it sounds very similar to perhaps what's in Australia. So in the United States, the EPA can try and take enforcement action against the federal military. However, they do have um, immunity from, you know, regulatory action or lawsuits. It's a little bit unusual, perhaps, in a way that the the military or the Department of Defense um, here in the United States can actually agree to be regulated by the EPA if it wishes to do so. 
Exactly. Talked about that with Garrett Allison. That was a Michigan reporter who said that people have to actually ask to sue the federal government. Is that a fair statement? That is that is a fair statement. Um, there are probably some exceptions. And, you know, what I would say, Kayleen, is just that if there is PFAS polluted water or drinking water in the area of the military bases, the EPA will realize that it will have a difficult time enforcing the standards and getting the costs from the military. So they will naturally look to other possible polluters in the area as well to try and recoup some of the costs for cleanup of the PFAS in the drinking water. So that's really why so many corporations are watching this so very closely, because they could be targeted for cleanup costs that are perhaps disproportionate, especially if they are near one of these military bases that you talked about. I imagine the military would have a difficult time if these EPA drinking water standards become regulatory. They might open themselves up to more lawsuits or do you think it would be more difficult going forward for the military? You're absolutely correct. And that's already taking place to some degree. Uh, Public pressure is enormous. And especially in the areas around the military bases, the citizens are understandably quite upset. And I think the federal government and the Department of Defense realize this and have already begun taking action on their own without even the EPA trying to enforce. So I do think that once the EPA enacts their standards, that that will only accelerate. So the third thing? The third thing is that the EPA intends to designate at least two types of PFAS, the PFOA and the PFOS, as what are called hazardous substances under a specific law in the United States. It's called the Superfund Law. In brief, what that is, is essentially if the EPA designates a portion of land in the United States or a riverway as a quote-unquote Superfund site, it has the authority and the power under the law to go after parties of any kind that it believes contributed to the pollution in the quote Superfund site. So they can only do that though if the chemicals that they're trying to clean up are listed under the Superfund law as hazardous substances. Right now, no PFAS are listed as hazardous substances. So once the EPA formally designates PFO and PFAS under the Superfund law, they can go after what they call potentially re- responsible party for the cleanup costs, which could be you know, understandably enormous. I think in one of your articles, I think you talk about the cost can be from hundreds to thousands to actually millions of dollars. Is that right? Easily. You know, there are hundreds of Superfund sites in the country already not related to PFAS, and they can be up to hundreds of millions of dollars in cleanup costs, certainly, and they can take decades to clean. What I understand, if I've read your articles correctly in the National Law Review, which you have written many, many articles on PFAS, from my understanding with the Superfund law and the EPA being able to go after the polluters, it's retrospective, isn't it? How far back can they go? Like if somebody contributed to the PFAS problem 20 years ago, can they go back that far or is there a limit? Uh, No, they can go back as far as they have information that there was a company or party polluting for the particular substance that they're pursuing. There's really no limit. If someone has sold a site, you know, they they maybe were a previous user of PFAS or manufacturer of PFAS and they're no longer the owner and they've sold it, would it be the new owner who is responsible or their previous owner or both? Both, potentially both. Certainly, I think if the old owner was polluting PFAS in some way that the EPA would certainly pursue that owner. So in addition to the EPA action 
uh, under their roadmap, which is incredibly significant in the United States, that we've also seen a large uptick in uh, the cosmetics industry actually being targeted for lawsuits very specifically geared towards PFAS. John is about to discuss information from an article he wrote in the National Law Review on the 3rd of March 2022. In this article he wrote, with studies underway, legislation pending that targets cosmetics and increasing media reporting on cosmetics concerns to human health, the cosmetics industry has a target on its back with respect to PFAS. That will have impacts on the industry's involvement in litigation. Back to John. They're very interesting. They're going after large cosmetic companies uh, that are global companies, in fact. And essentially what they're doing, there have been four lawsuits to date. They're all doing something very similar. They are alleging that the companies for many years have advertised and told consumers that the products are environmentally friendly, you know, all natural, uh, healthy, safe for human use whatever catchphrases you want to use. However, certain of the products made by these cosmetics companies contain certain types of PFAS, and therefore these lawsuits are all alleging that those statements to the public were false and misleading and constitute what's called consumer fraud. So they're trying to get the companies to stop um, marketing their products as such if they contain PFAS. Um, Second, they would like the companies to not produce those products anymore with PFAS in them. And then third, they want monetary damages for violations of certain consumer protection laws that we have here in the United States. It's significant because it's really taken place within a three-month time span. Four lawsuits against four cosmetic giants in three months is significant news. Who are the claims against at the moment? Are you able to name them? Uh, Yes. So one is L'Oreal. Uh, the second one is Shiseido, and then there's CoverGirl, and the fourth one is against C- Clorox, which many people in the U.S. think of as a bleach manufacturer, but they actually owned a cosmetics company by the name of Burt's Bees. John wrote about the lawsuit against Clorox in relation to Burt's Bees Cosmetics in his National Law Review article dated 15th of February 2022. He states, the lawsuit alleges that the company does not disclosed to consumers that its mascara, lip gloss and lip shimmer products contain PFAS. Instead, the lawsuit states the products were fraudulently and misleadingly marketed as safe for consumers and environmentally friendly in violation of federal and state consumer laws. John's article further states that industry, insurers and investment companies interested in the consumer goods vertical with niche interest in cosmetics companies, must pay careful attention to the Burt's Bees lawsuit and the increasing trend of lawsuits targeting the industry. I think in your article you talk about the cosmetic industry's claims of being environmentally friendly is resulting in what's called greenwashing lawsuits. What does that mean? Sure. Greenwashing is a sort of a catchphrase in the United States that basically... um, is a term that that means that companies are marketing products in one way, but they're simply trying to make their products or their company appear more, quote-unquote, green um, when they're really not. So they're sort of greenwashing the public. (laughs) 
You said some people are asking for compensation because it breaches consumer laws. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Are they implying that they've been injured by these products or is it just simply that they were sold to them under the proviso that they were environmentally safe? Well, it's a, it's a yes and no answer, actually. So they're not, uh, they're not directly saying that the products caused anyone harm. Um, however, in order to say to the courts that the products are being marketed as safe and that's not true, um, they are making allegations that PFAS, generally speaking, um, are have been found to have effects on human health that are obviously, you know, adverse that nobody wants. So that's sort of a foundational point for the for the lawsuits in the sense that they have to argue that in order for them to say the products are being falsely marketed as safe for human use, basically. Okay. And what do you think the significance of the EPA when they set those drinking water regulations? What do you think the significance of that might be for any lawsuits regarding PFAS? Say, for instance, PFOA and PFOS are listed as hazardous. Would you see a a huge amount of lawsuits rolling in regarding PFAS if that happens? I believe so, yes, and especially not just the drinking water bond, but the other one, the Superfund law that I mentioned, that's really the one that targets most directly many types of environmental pollution, not just water, but land as well, land pollution. So when both happen, which I do believe that they will both happen, yes, lawsuits in the United States related to PFAS are going to skyrocket. They're going to skyrocket, yeah, and that would be anything from personal injury claims to breaches of the consumer laws to property losses? Is that what you would see would be the main allegations? Yes. So the EPA ones will more directly be lawsuits or actions asking for the costs for the cleanup, which would be enormous costs. But the lawsuits that will be brought by the citizens thereafter would, as you said, Kayleen, also sort of piggyback off of that. And the citizens will also say, well, the EPA may not be focused on this particular area of land or this water source, but we are. This is important to our local community. And they could file lawsuits along the lines of what I just mentioned. The personal injury aspect of it is going to take a little bit more time. The first wave, I think, is going to need more of these pollution claims, but the personal injury will follow. What everybody is waiting for on the plaintiff's attorney side is definitive statements from not only the EPA, but other world organizations, such as the WHO, for example, is one of them, that certain types of PFAS are directly linked to adverse human health effects. Some of that exists, but they also need the scientific literature to really back it up. And right now, at least in the United States, there's still literature going both ways on this. Yes, that's true, even in Australia as well. Actually, on that point, I just wanted to discuss one of your articles that you wrote in the National Law Review on February 28, 2022. And you talk about something I've not heard before. Prop 65 lists PFOA as carcinogen. For the benefit of listeners in Australia and people unfamiliar, could you give us a brief explanation of what Prop 65 is and the significance of this listing, basically? This is in California, right? Right. So Prop 65, it's actually Proposition 65. It's part of a 
an actual act that was passed in California back in 1986. But it's essentially a law that was intended to provide consumers with information, clear disclosures of information by consumer good manufacturers and suppliers regarding potentially cancer-causing agents and products or uh, agents in the products that could cause reproductive harm. And so what they were trying to do when they passed this law, the Prop 65 law, is to make manufacturers and suppliers place warnings on the products so that consumers could make informed decisions or educated decisions about whether they wanted to actually purchase the product before they got the product. So that was sort of the intent of it. And it is specific California, as you said, Kayleen. So it relates to California, but what I understand is even businesses that supply products to the state of California it would impact them. Is that correct? Yes. And even one step further, if, if you have a internet business and even if it doesn't directly supply to California yet, if there are consumers who are searching your website potentially for products that they may purchase and bring into California, your internet page or your company website also has requirements for placing warnings prior to the purchase by the consumer of that product. So it's really all-encompassing. The governing body in California that was given the power and authority to sort of oversee the Prop 65 issues is the California Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment. It's often referred to in the United States as OEHA, O-E-H-H-A. I'm reading your article and it says that they added PFOA to the list of chemicals known to cause cancer. So this is different language to what we've seen before about probable or possible carcinogen, you know, to say that it's known to cause cancer while there is still so much debate in the scientific community about health effects of certain PFAS. What do you make of that language and how significant is that in your opinion? Well, they based their finding, I know, on information that was available to them by something called the National Toxicology Program, which is sort of a program by the Federal Department of Health here in the United States. So they reviewed all of the scientific literature available to them, and their finding was based on everything they saw that they felt that PFOA was a carcinogen, and hence their listing of PFOA under Prop 65, as you mentioned. It's certainly something that's very significant, and I mentioned just a few moments ago what the plaintiff's bar in the United States is waiting for, more of these definitive statements from agencies that regulate chemicals and, you know, try and protect human health. I could absolutely see this one being one that's used in future lawsuits. OEHA is a respected agency. Its scientists are very well respected. And I can see it having influence on perhaps other states as well, although we'll have to see. Time will tell for that. In a statement by OEHA, regarding why they determined that PFOA meets the criteria for listing under Prop 65, they refer to a 2020 National Toxicology Program technical report on the toxicology and carcinogenesis studies of PFOA. AWIHA made this determination after reviewing public comments on the proposed listing of PFOA. On March 19, 2021, OEHA issued a notice of intent to list PFOA under Proposition 65 as a chemical known to the state to cause cancer. 
This resulted in comments being received over a 45-day comment period. Five sets of comments were submitted and they were from 3M, the American Chemistry Council, the Breast Cancer Prevention Partners, the Environmental Working Group, and from Australia, the Queensland Department of Environment and Science. These comments are very detailed and far too complex for me to summarise in today's episode, but they are available online and I'll put a link to those in the show notes. So that organisation is very respected within California, but also within the United States, would would you say? I would say it's respected. I wouldn't go as far to say as it's extremely influential, but it, it is a respected agency. And I would say even the EPA would consider the findings of OEHA in doing their large-scale assessment of PFOA as well. I would. You said that they based their findings on PFOA being a carcinogen. You talked about National Toxicology Program. So is that a well-renowned program or is it could that be referred to as a advocacy group or is it you know well-respected professionals oh it's definitely not an advocacy group it's part of the federal government it's part of the department of of human health right here in the united states so it's certainly not an advocacy group the only thing i would say is a sort of caveat is that the department of human health doesn't necessarily directly study cause and effect for chemicals that's not entirely their role So the information to the Department of Human Health was sort of a collection of existing scientific literature and their own belief about the results from that literature. John, just to clarify, this most recent news article that you wrote for the National Law Review talks about PFOA being listed as a carcinogen under Prop 65. But isn't it true that also PFOS has previously been listed as a substance that has a recognized reproductive harm by the state of California? That's correct. In, in 2017, both PFOA and PFAS were listed as chemicals that could cause reproductive harm. But uh, I'll even say in December of 2021, OEHA actually listed PFAS as a carcinogen under the Prop 65 laws. So both PFOA and PFAS are now listed in California as carcinogens and capable of causing reproductive harm. Both of them, both of them carcinogens, both of them capable of reproductive harm. Yes, correct. Wow. This is quite significant information, isn't it? Uh, It is. It was a very busy year for OEHA last year. Is that Prop 65 regulation like an enforceable regulation? Is it in effect now? Has it been passed? Uh, Yes, it has been passed. There is a, uh, I guess what you might call a grace period. Uh, for companies to uh, come into compliance. I believe that there is a grace period of six months for them. So the PFOS one is now in effect and the PFOA one will be in effect very soon. For businesses that market products that have PFOS and PFOA, you, you make a point of mentioning that there are specific requirements for the language, the size, the lettering, the warning labels regarding this regulation. Is, is that true? They're now enforceable? Yes, the warning label aspect of this is significant for many companies. The other aspect of the enforceable Prop 65 laws is that there are there's sort of a cottage industry of people out there that will test products to try and find 
chemicals that are listed under Prop 65 in products, and they will bring sort of enforcement actions on behalf of the state of California to try and get the damages or the penalties or fines under Prop 65 for those violations. So those are trackable and traceable on the OEHA website, how many enforcement actions have been filed. I would certainly expect to see an uptick in those numbers. Certainly, and especially if the EPA do enforce those drinking water guidelines, as we discussed earlier. Do you think under Prop 65, businesses that manufacture PFOS or PFOA or use them in their products, do you think that under this Prop 65, they'll be responsible for cleanup if the manufacturing process produces a waste stream that then gets into the town's water supplies, landfills, etc.? Will there be recourse from municipalities as well with this Prop 65 or is it just civil action? Yes, I think it would be more civil action and that's what's already been seen. I I don't think those types of lawsuits is something you would see under Prop 65. You mentioned to me that the environmental justice issue is picking up considerable steam in the US specific to PFAS. I wonder if you could just talk about the EJ movement. Absolutely. So another big thing that happened actually just in January of this year by the EPA in the United States was they put forth an environmental justice plan as well. And the EPA's definition of environmental justice is making sure that there's fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of anything like race or color income or anything of that respect, with respect to developing, implementing, and enforcing environmental laws. So what they're really trying to do is two things in the big picture. The EPA is trying to make sure that all classes and people of any background in the United States receive the same degree of protection from environmental laws. And they're also trying to make sure that all people of any background in the United States have a voice through public hearings and actually can participate in some way in decision-making when the EPA is considering passing new environmental regulations. And that is playing out already with respect to PFAS. Right, because it's true that for PFAS, I suppose other pollutants as well, we shouldn't just say PFAS. In your email to me, you said poorer communities are disproportionately impacted by these pollution issues. Is that the case when it comes to PFAS? Yes, I would certainly say that there's evidence for that, and it's what the EPA is particularly concerned about. You know, in the United States, as I'm sure elsewhere uh, across the globe, many industrial areas, the people that are living around those areas are more from disadvantaged backgrounds, and it's those types of communities in particular that the EPA is concerned about and wants to make sure that the history of ignoring those types of communities or not giving them as much cleanup efforts as other communities have received is sort of reversed and that they do get their due attention. And even with respect to PFAS, the EPA, of course, as we just said, doesn't have any enforceable limits yet, but they're already holding and they've already hosted a number of public comment sessions with respect to PFAS. And these are avenues for people who represent people in environmental justice communities or the citizens themselves to comment and weigh in on why there is a need for very strong and very strong enforcement of any PFAS limits that are uh, enacted by the EPA with respect to drinking water. And we've seen that throughout all of these meetings so far. 
you also wrote to me that the EPA is looking to areas that have been most hard hit by PFAS pollution issues and is shaping its future regulatory actions based on that information. That's a, a summary of what you just spoke about, isn't it? Yes, and uh, I think you know the second part is just that once the limits are set and enforceable, I believe that the EPA is signaling that it intends to look to those communities first, you know, higher on the list than ever before, certainly for their enforcement actions for PFAS. It's a good thing that the EPA is looking to make sure those communities are impacted communities are um, helped, I guess, because they've felt quite alone in the fight against the polluters. Many communities have felt very small compared to these polluters with deep pockets. So it's good that they'll have the EPA more in their corner, it, it seems, if I've understood. Yes, that's correct. And even not with respect to PFAS, but even with um, other environmental issues that's certainly been playing out already just this year with the EPA. That's very good. If EPA does enforce those drinking water guidelines for PFOS and PFOA and perhaps other PFAS chemicals in the future, where does that leave residents if those chemicals are listed as hazardous substances? Where will that leave residents, farmers who maybe their land has been impacted by PFAS in biosolids, which they've spread on their land as a fertilizer? We've seen that happen in Maine and places like that. Or in the US, there's a lot of, which is different to Australia, there is a lot of people who rely on groundwater wells for drinking water. So where will it leave those people that through no fault of their own, their land has been affected by PFAS or their well? Will they be able to sell their properties? Will they be liable for lawsuits? Well, the property owners in the examples that you mentioned, anyway, Kayleen, like the farmers, for example, I don't believe they will be directly liable for the lawsuits. It would be the companies themselves that were spreading the bio sludge or the bio waste on those properties that have been the ones that have been targeted so far. But a lot of the times it was the farmers that were spreading it. As I understand, it was supplied to them. There was like programs where farmers were actually encouraged to apply these biosolids to their land and as it turns out you know many have discovered there was PFAS in them because it comes from sewerage sludge which comes from wastewater treatment plants so in that case it was the farmers themselves spreading it where does that leave them and where does it leave residents whose groundwater wells have been impacted by an external PFAS plume you know that's moved onto their land yes so in, I guess in the example or scenario you're giving me, Kayleen, the citizens in the surrounding areas in Maine have filed lawsuits, in fact, against the companies that were producing the bio sludge waste. And they're bringing the lawsuits for making several allegations. One is the drinking water is contaminated. Two is sort of what's called diminution of land value. Uh, in other words, the land is not worth as much as it was because it's contaminated with PFAS. And then there are also claims similar to drinking water sources, but the, the private wells that many of these landowners have are essentially not usable right now because they're so highly polluted. So there's already been uh, litigation around this. It's, it's ongoing. 
but they are going after the companies themselves, the industries themselves that are making the biosludge. There are no lawsuits against the farmers themselves. And there are two reasons why I can never imagine that happening. It's just the farming community is so ingrained in the culture of Maine and many other states in the United States that I can't plausibly see farmers themselves, individual landowning farmers being sued for using this type of biosludge. But the second reason for it is sort of a more practical reason from the perspective of a plaintiff's attorney, that being you probably would get nothing out of an individual farmer. It would drive them to bankruptcy and it would be for naught. But if you go after the company <laughs> that was providing the biosludge, you have pockets to go after. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So, okay, with the scenario that I mentioned about just an individual whose groundwater well has been impacted by a PFAS plume that's come from a, a source in the area, you know, it's polluted the groundwater, polluted their well. If the EPA designate PFOS, PFOA as hazardous substances, will that leave people unable to sell their properties or will they just have to make sure that they are telling people in the contract for sale that there's pe there's hazardous substances in the drinking water. Yeah, so that's a very interesting question, Kayleen. It's actually something that's not quite played out yet. But on the individual level, you know, just a person-to-person -person sale of a home, for example, no state at the moment in the United States requires a disclosure of PFAS of any kind, you know, in the sale documents. And it has not been tested yet whether or not you would verbally have to tell the potential buyer of that land about any problems that you know about. Uh, it would depend state to state on the law, but I could see in some states where there might be a legal argument that if somebody knew that there was a plume of PFAS, you know, in their groundwater, for example, and they failed to disclose it, that that's sort of a material breach of the contract that you're signing to purchase the land and therefore the contract is null and void. I could certainly see that argument. Now, that's the individual at the individual level, but there's a different aspect that is actually playing out a little bit um, with respect to PFAS. And that is sort of the bigger corporations who are buying land for their own purposes or companies that buy land. And I published an article about this in National Law Review for something called the ASTM standards. And what that is, is that there are these set of standards in the United States when uh, companies are going to buy land for commercial or industrial purposes, where you have to do an assessment of the land force, or you should. You should do an assessment of the land before purchasing the land to see if there are any uh, potential environmental hazards on that land that might affect the deal or lower the value of the land that you should know about before you buy it. You're talking about an environmental site assessment, aren't you? We, we call them that in Australia as well. Yes. Okay. That would reveal any contaminants that might exist, right? It would, but I guess until very recently, anyway, PFAS were not listed on that set of contaminants that parties needed to think about. So nobody had to disclose it. And even though people who are buying might know what PFAS are. Many of them for a long time didn't really want to know because they were just more concerned about getting the deal done. And they didn't know until I said October 2021 what EPA was ever going to do about PFAS. And so they saw the risk as something that they could certainly live with. However, the standards for the site inspection 
in the United States recently changed. And now there's a strong suggestion in a footnote for those standards that says that while we're not requiring you or any party to test for PFAS, basically, we suggest that you do so, essentially because of all the things the EPA is about to do and has stated that they want to do. So that is something that's playing out, again, not at the individual residential property level, but certainly in the industrial levels. You mentioned near the end of that article, published on March 13, 2022, in the National Law Review, that the cleanup costs could run into millions of dollars again. And it also could affect lending. If they do this investigation and PFAS is found, it could put the lending or the property deal into jeopardy. Is that right? Very much so, especially if you have a bank or a lender who is concerned at a high level about PFAS and believes that it may impact the land value and their return on any loan that they're giving to a party in the deal. So absolutely. Is it referred to as E152721 or is it got a different title? No, that's what it's called. (laughs) Okay. So this standard, it's regulatory now? It's enforceable? Well, no. In the United States, it's not enforceable. It's just something that is seen as sort of the gold standard. So if you don't follow it, you're sort of being negligent. Then if you don't follow it, and then later on, you find out there's PFAS on that property, I imagine it would be at your expense, the new owner's expense to clean that up because they didn't do the investigation? Yeah, that's right. I can't imagine a scenario where someone in that situation would be able to argue that the seller of the land committed fraud on them and didn't disclose things. You have the opportunity to do the site inspection and you, you didn't do it. So that's what it's there for. Right, I see. So it's becoming like a new standard when you go and get commercial property with your environmental site assessment, you now say, I'd like to do a PFAS assessment as well. That's basically what it is, right? Correct. What is the impacts retrospectively of this? Are there any? Possibly, although not really. Yeah, because it wasn't sort of part of the standard until very recently. So nobody was under an obligation to do it before. I believe, John, there's been a development in a lawsuit by the lead attorney, Rob Ballot in Ohio. Could you please just update the listeners on what's happened there? Give them a little bit of history and context and then what the latest development is regarding that lawsuit. Sure. Uh, So about two years ago, there was a very significant lawsuit filed in Ohio, as you mentioned, Kayleen, by Mr. Ballot. And he was trying to have the Ohio court allow what's called a class action lawsuit on behalf of numerous plaintiffs alleging certain things with respect to PFAS. And in this case, what he was saying is that everybody in the United States or 98% of the people in the population in the United States have some level of PFAS in their blood. And therefore, the entire class or the number of people that should be allowed to be brought into this lawsuit as parties that may be able to get something out of the lawsuit would be 90% of the population of the United States. And this is kind of directly related to several specific types of PFAS that he was alleging, you know, can cause harm. That was the basis of his lawsuit. And that was, of course, objected to. There was arguments about that to the court. And just a couple of days ago, in fact, that the court ruled that no, they will not allow all of the 90% of the United States population to be the plaintiffs in this lawsuit, but 
they did allow the entire state of Ohio to be the plaintiffs in the lawsuit for Mr. Balot. Again, specific to the specific types of PFAS that he's alleging got into the blood of the citizens of Ohio. That was a big development. That is a huge development. And the lead plaintiff in this is a fireman, is that correct? Yes, Mr. Hardwick. Mr. Hardwick. He's the lead plaintiff. So they're alleging that PFAS shouldn't be in the blood of every American. And now they're going to be focusing on it shouldn't be in the blood of people in Ohio, right? That live in Ohio. Is that correct? That is correct. I would say also just stay tuned because the judge also said that he will allow the parties to submit further arguments about whether or not people in other states, not the entire United States, but other states in the union should be considered part of this class as well. So the battle for the number of plaintiffs is going to continue. (laughs) So who are they actually suing? They are suing, let's see, I believe that there are about five or six companies that they are suing, and they are companies that either manufactured PFAS or distributed them in the state of Ohio. It's 3M and then DuPont, and then DuPont sort of spinoff Kimor's company. There's a few others. One is Arkema, A-R-K-E-M-A, and then Arkroma. A-R-C-H-R-O-M-A. And then there's one more. It's a Japanese company, I believe, Daikin, D-A-I-K-I-N. I think that's all of them. What are they asking for in this lawsuit, John? Because I believe they're not asking for money. That's correct. They're not asking for money. They're asking for two things. One is something called medical monitoring. I think you and I have talked a little bit about this on a previous podcast, but it's something in the United States system Certain states, not all, allow for medical monitoring. And what it is, is plaintiffs can bring a lawsuit saying, we have a risk of harm from something. We don't have the injury or the harm yet, but there is a risk that we will get it. So we would like whoever the party is that's allegedly responsible to pay for the medical costs associated with following us, giving us medical checkups, and ultimately, if we do develop any sort of disease, to pay for that medical treatment. So that's medical monitoring. And then the second thing that they're asking for, and really perhaps which will, in my opinion, be the more significant thing, is Mr. Balot wants another science panel convened, similar to what he got many, many years ago in West Virginia, which really started the entire PFAS litigation in the United States, truthfully. And that science panel, would they be looking at every resident that resides in Ohio? That's what he wants. And there are 7 million people that live in Ohio, give or take a few, but it's 7 million people. And so just put that in context a little bit, when he was in West Virginia about two decades ago now, and he got his science panel through the litigation there, there were 70,000 citizens that showed up for the science panel. And, you know, we of course have the science panel results from PFOA that we have now, multiply that a hundredfold, you know, assuming everyone were to show up and get tested. But that's an enormous, enormous class and pool of people, which would really never have been, it it would never be seen uh, in the history of any sort of epidemiology before to have a pool of voluntary citizens tested at once for certain chemical cause and effect. It would be enormous. It would be enormous and for, um, it would be the largest PFAS study ever. And from what I understand, when they did the C8 study, they had sued one of the polluters and got the money for the medical monitoring for the C8 study. And it might have been DuPont. Am I correct in that? Yes. 
Yes. And then they had paid, from what I understand from the Dark Waters movie, if this fact is correct, uh, they had paid these citizens to have the blood test. I think in the movie it was portrayed that they paid $400 for them to turn up and get their blood taken. First of all, is that correct in your understanding from a legal point of view? Because I've only I'm only basing that off the movie. Yes. So Dupont had agreed to give, I believe, it was about a hundred million dollars to sort of fund the medical portion of all of this and the testing and the science panel research. And then yes, in order to get the number of people that they got to show up for the blood testing, Mr. Balad and his co-counsel came up with the brilliant idea to pay each individual that showed up. It was either three or four hundred dollars each. But yes, there was enough money to get some So if you're talking about Ohio and 7 million people, would that mean they'd be wanting to do a similar thing where they're getting the money to pay so as many of those 7 million would get their blood tested? Because you wouldn't get everyone to sign up and do it. It's all very speculative at this point, but do you think they'll be paying people again to get their blood tested? I could certainly see them doing that. And again, just to put it in perspective, Mr. Palat and his team got $100 million dollars for medical testing for 70,000 people in West Virginia, if he's got potentially 7 million citizens who he could test in the state of Ohio, the amount of money that he could get from the court and through this litigation process for that medical monitoring could be enormous. And so, yes, he would certainly have the funding to back him to give the citizens potentially a significant sum of money to show up and do the testing. Absolutely. So that litigation, is that before the court right now? Is is it due to be heard in the future? What do you understand about that one? Well, the status right now is that once the judge made his ruling uh, just a week or two ago, there was already an appeal that the decision was incorrect in some ways by the companies that I mentioned that were brought into this lawsuit. They are arguing that the decision was not correct and it should be a much narrower class of people or of plaintiffs. So that's going to have to play out. And then, as I said, the court did allow for Mr. Balot and his team of other attorneys to bring forth other arguments about why other citizens from other states should be allowed to be brought into the same lawsuit as part of the class. So that's going to play out as well. And then once all of that is done, which could take truthfully years, then the real litigation will begin. Then the arguments about the medical monitoring scope, science panel, all of that will begin. Even if they are successful and the whole state of Ohio is actually in this medical monitoring, the C8 study took many, many years, didn't it, to complete? Yes, it did. Yeah. Do you know how long? I believe it was six years for the science panel itself just to do its work, but the entire process took much longer than that. Yes. John, I'd just like to mention a couple more of your articles, but basically between the end of February and pretty much the end of March, You've written at least 10 articles in the National Law Review on PFAS. So any of the listeners that would like to know more about things that we've discussed today or more about what's happening in the United States with PFAS, they can certainly check out your articles. They're all there online and anybody can access those. I'd just like to quickly mention on March 10, 2022, a bill was sent to the governor of Washington's desk that significantly accelerates the state's initiative to develop regulations for various consumer goods that contain PFAS. If you could just mention what you think is significant regarding that one or or, um, what's important regarding that one. Well, this is 
sort of another example, certainly not the first state to do this, but it's certainly one of the growing number of states to try and regulate or ban, I should say, certain types of PFAS in, in consumer products. So I guess what I would say is significant about the one you flagged, Kayleen, is that they don't put any sort of limits as other states have done. You know, some states just say PFOA, some states just say PFOA and PFAS. This one is much more all-encompassing. It simply says all PFAS. So they're trying to enact a ban for consumer goods, uh, certain consumer goods in the state that contain any type of PFAS, which is quite big if you're one of the manufacturers of those products, for sure. And you mentioned in that article that Washington's latest PFAS-related legislation, HB 1694, requires the state's Department of Ecology, the DOE, to name PFAS-containing firefighting gear a priority product under the state's Safer Products for Washington initiative. That seems significant for firefighters, is it? Uh, Certainly. You know, there's been a lot of regulation and legislation in the U.S. and many states about firefighting foam, but this is certainly one of the first examples in the United States with respect to the firefighting gear. We've certainly seen some scientific literature about that that's been in the media, but this is the most robust state legislation in the U.S. to date about firefighting gear and trying to regulate it with respect to PFAS. My discussion with John occurred on the 29th of March and on the 31st of March, Washington's governor signed the bill that we have just been discussing. And then the DOE, the Department of Ecology, would have until 2024 to evaluate alternatives for PFAS in the listed products and develop regulations. Final regulations would be required by 2025. Is it the DOE that would be enforcing this bill? It would, yes. And so what that portion of what you read was basically saying is the the bill that you referenced calls out specific types of consumer goods, right? But what this bill is also giving the DOE, which is the Department of Environment for that state, uh, the power to do is sort of, I guess, investigate or research other consumer goods that it may wish to regulate in the same way. And it's asking it to put forth proposals for other products, consumer goods that it wishes to have the regulations applied to by those timetables you just mentioned. Two other recent articles that I wrote about in National Law Review were more at the state level. We've been talking a lot about federal we touched on California, but, you know, out of Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, there have been two recent proposals, two recent bills put forth sort of at the same time, actually trying to pass more PFAS drinking water standards in those states as well. And so the relevance to that is really just as two more examples out of the 50 states in the United States that are pushing forth with their own regulations or not waiting for the EPA. So what I find interesting about what's happening in Wisconsin in particular is that, you know, the 70 parts per trillion level is right where the EPA is now, but I don't think it's what they're going to do. They're going to be much lower than that. And so the state of Wisconsin, while it's good and admirable that they're going through this process and trying to regulate PFAS and drinking water, the legislation, if it passes this year or next, will almost become moot when the EPA releases its own enforceable regulatory standards. So I just found that curious what Wisconsin was doing. And so the significance is that states that have already enacted legislation or thinking about it and are setting it or have set it at 70 parts per trillion are now automatically going to have to lower that standard to what the EPA says. 
that's the minimum that every state is going to have to follow. So they're going through so much effort and uh, legislative time, which is good, but the number seems very high, and I'm surprised they didn't put it lower if they enact this law in the next year or something and the EPA comes out with a lower number, it's going to be almost moot. Yeah, definitely. You said in that article that there's considerable debate within the Natural Resources Board, the NRB, regarding the drinking water standard for PFOA and PFOS, with many proponents advocating for a 20 parts per trillion standard. So it's a lot lower than 70, isn't it? Right. This was hotly debated for a while and, and I the news I saw out of Wisconsin was kind of shock that the um, proposal that was put forth uh, anyway was not um, to follow what people were recommending the 20 parts per trillion standard as you said so it was very surprising when they chose to instead put forth 70. If the EPA regulate a level that is lower states that have set their own levels higher will they need to bring them down to that EPA level? Yes, they must. The EPA is the minimum if when it passes. Interesting. So if states have maybe set them high because they know they've got a lot of PFAS pollution, they're still going to have to lower those limits to match the EPA. That's right. They will. And in both of those uh, situations you mentioned, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, they can also seek out past polluters. Oh, absolutely. Yes, that's already happening in states that have their own drinking water standards, certainly. And I believe Pennsylvania went for a much lower number or, or they're, they're trying to go for a much lower number. Is that correct? That is correct. So with Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, have they managed to in, make these limits enforceable or they're just in the process of trying to make them enforceable? Uh, it's just in the process. The Pennsylvania one is much farther along. I mean, it's in what's called the comments period. So it's giving the public the chance to weigh in. And the Wisconsin one is not quite there yet. So the Pennsylvania one is much farther along. And I believe they went for a level of 14 parts per trillion for PFOA and 18 parts per trillion for PFOS. Have I understood that correctly? Yes, that's correct. Also on March 21, we'll just discuss your last article there. PFAS circular exemptions movement grows. Can you please explain what that is, C-E-R-C-L-A, and then briefly what that article's about and why it's important? Yes, the CERCLA law stands for the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, CERCLA. It's also known by its sort of more colloquial name, the Superfund Law, which is the one that we had talked about in the beginning of the podcast. So CERCLA is the same thing as Superfund. And I guess what's significant about the article you mentioned, Kayleen, is just that there is a growing movement or effort by certain industries that are extremely worried that they will be targeted if the Superfund designation of PFO and PFOS pass. They'll be easy targets for sort of enforcement action and will be on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars in cleanup costs. So as I mentioned in the article there, specifically so far, it's the water utilities, waste management companies, and liquid terminal companies that are concerned because they know that they have, perhaps not even through their own fault or through anything that they directly did, but they have significant PFAS pollution concerns on property that they own. And they know that if the CERCLA law, the PFAS law passes for PFO and PFAS, that the EPA will almost surely immediately target them. What they're arguing to the White House at the moment is the cost would be so enormous on our industries that you need to find a way to have exemptions created under the law such that we will not be targeted. 
regarding this federal law, in your article, you talk about sites that were previously investigated and declared Superfund sites might now need to search for PFAS, PFOS and PFOA. Is that correct? Yes. In the U.S., we call this reopener scenarios. So as you said, Kayleen, you know, let's take an example, a landfill with waste, right? A waste management company owned that, perhaps for various contaminants like mercury or arsenic or something like that. It had previously been designated a Superfund site, and the EPA had forced them to clean it up at the cost of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. They, Everybody thought, case closed, we can continue on with life, the site is no longer an issue. Not so fast, because once the PFO and PFAS are designated under this CERCLA federal law, the EPA can go back to that same site and say, well, wait a minute, we never tested for PFO and PFAS, we're going to do it now. And if they find it, they can reopen the site, redesignate it as a Superfund site, and again, uh, go after the waste management company for cleanup costs, which could again be quite high, depending on the scope. Can they declare it a Superfund site? if PFOS and PFOA are not declared hazardous substances? No, they cannot. Right. So for this circular law to result in a reopener, that is a Superfund site that now has to investigate for PFOS and PFOA, the EPA would first have to designate PFOS and PFOA as hazardous substances. Am, am I correct? 100%. Yes, absolutely. Given everything we've discussed today and the increasing litigation and regulatory action that is taking place in the U.S. regarding PFAS, what would be your parting advice for businesses, companies that either manufacture PFAS or use PFAS in their process? I guess I would say, you know, not only educate yourself about what is happening in the various states and at the EPA level, which is, of course, incredibly important because it's going to impact how you as a company uh, need to act in the future and the standard that you would be held to, but also figure out and definitely spend the time to understand perhaps your legacy uh, issues, as they are called. You know, prior to any enforceable limits or state laws that may have gone into effect, what was your use of PFAS like and what might be your footprint on not only the environment, but uh, if you're a consumer goods manufacturer, impact on human health. And, you know, just circling back to everything we've talked about today, all of these regulations sort of focus on those two things, environmental pollution and the costs associated with cleanup, and then the potential for harm to human health and the, you know, potential litigation that can come from that. So you'll never understand your full scope of risk unless you understand not only what you're doing today, but what you've done in the past. Um, and then I guess my final advice would be, you know, there's a lot of uh, good, uh, sound advice behind figuring out if you are using PFAS today, whether you need to find a substitute, uh, whether it is a PFAS type that has clear effects on human health or not, or whether it's still under debate. Um, but if there are substitutes, I always say make sure that you're not uh, replacing with something that we call a regrettable substitute one that might be another chemical or another substance that either now or down the line is going to have similar issues to PFAS. So do your due diligence on all of these things to protect yourself. There's a lot in that and a lot of good advice there. And uh, as you said, you know, with more regulatory action, it will result in more litigation. That's the bottom line, isn't it? 
It is, absolutely. Thank you again for your time today, John. It was a fascinating discussion as always. Well, thank you, Kayleen. I always appreciate the opportunity and I love your podcast. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to having you on the podcast down the track, which I'm sure you'll have much more PFAS news to tell us. Well, thank you, Kayleen. Thank you, John. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I feel that it was a very significant episode and one that I hope and would love for you to share with others and to also perhaps introduce them to Talking PFAS podcast for the first time. Going forward, Talking PFAS episodes will publish monthly for the rest of 2022. I encourage you to subscribe so that you'll always know when a new episode is out. And like always, feel free to contact me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. All information in today's episode is copyright. Please share the podcast, but please also contact me for reuse permissions. Thank you and see you next time.